dreams, nightmares, flashbacks, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, feeling of isolation. When Norm Watt got shot, that really set me in a downward spiral for my mental health and really the full fury of PTSD um, uh, hit me. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking Podcast. Today's guest is Daryl Green, Senior Sergeant Daryl Green, who unfortunately had an incident that occurred some years ago where he went to a routine call out for domestic violence and was shot in the face. This is his story around recovery, hope, uh, those that were around him and how he's become a better police officer and better human being since. Enjoy the story. Welcome back to Better Thinking Podcast. I've got Senior Sergeant Daryl Elliott Green here to talk to us about, I suppose in some sense, his lived experience, not only as a police officer, but uh, an incident that, that occurred some time ago that really jumped out at me when doing research as to guests for the podcast. And I think Daryl's got something special to to share with us and, and, and more so about his journey as well post this incident because that that I think is you know somewhat more of the inspirational side uh, of, of the reason why you know I've invited Daryl uh, to the show so thank you very much Daryl for coming and um, you know welcome to the show it's a pleasure Nash maybe we can uh, start with uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself how you got into the uh, police force I know it's probably a little while ago now um, and then and then maybe just carry on into the story that way I come from a very loving family uh, with a, an older brother and I thought everybody's family was just like mine. I left uh, high school and I never got into any of the university courses I was interested in, but I always liked being uh, fit and active. I looked at joining the army, but in 1991, the Australian army wasn't very active. One morning, I'm at the kitchen uh, table and my mum turns around and says well uh, darling uh, why don't you join the police and I thought well what I get to learn I get to apply and I get to help people and I put my application in and here I am today still a policeman. Wow it's just like that I think I had a similar story where I think mum and dad said hey Nish why don't you join the army um, and, you know, I scratched me, yeah, why not? You know, didn't know what I was getting into. So I've changed hats, obviously, since then. Um, but tell me the rest of the story. You, you started, how, how old were you when you, when you um, got in? I was 18. Uh, I joined as a recruit. I graduated about two months before my 19th birthday. And I went into general duties and... I studied a Bachelor of Arts degree. My mum, you know, urged me to continue with my education. And so I was working full-time, studying part-time and earned a Bachelor's degree in Justice Studies. And I was awaiting promotion for Senior Constable in the year 2000. And I was expecting a quiet Sunday night shift when everything changed. (laughs) In what sort of way? 3 a.m. in the morning, we were having a coffee with our sergeant at a BP service station, passing the time, and a police radio crackled, and I recorded in my notebook a routine job. 
and uh, we we attended it. It was death threats spoken six hours earlier. We arrived at the scene, my partner and myself in our vehicle, our supervisor followed behind in his vehicle. We met two males on the driveway, started the question, started our investigation. Started to rain, we moved up to the veranda, continued our questioning. Sergeant then went down to his patrol car, entered the front seat, was using a mobile phone to do background checks on the suspect. My partner and I then went down to his car and since there was no imminent threat to life, we had to make a decision. There was death threats. It was over a $20 football bet. Uh, these uh, men had falling out over. It was an allegation that he had illegal firearms and we had to make a decision on their credibility and uh, if we were going to immediately uh, enter the house and search for this, this weapon. They all lived in this cul-de-sac very close or did we need to go to a justice of the peace and get a, get a search warrant? So my sergeant's in the front seat on the mobile phone. My partner enters the front passenger seat and she's using the place to radio, do background checks on the two males of callers to the address. I open the rear passenger seat, sit down and slide across so I can listen to the information coming in on, on the mobile phone and over the radio. And we were only going to be there a few moments. So I left the rear passenger door uh, open. It's dark, still it's quiet. Kind of sounds fairly run of the mill. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, as you say, routine call. You're just doing your checks, making sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of allegations that go around all, all the time that you guys are, are required to follow up on. It's, it's a very common thing. People, you know, when the heat of the moment to fly off the handle and make all sorts of threats and allegations, and it's often more to do with uh, intimidation rather than, than acting on it. Um, but it's still an offence to make it make a threat. And so, we, uh, but there was allegations of, of a weapon. But we just don't kick doors down on uh, uh, without doing our due diligence uh, to, to ensure that we have a uh, reasonable suspicion that this person does have illegal firearms and has made such threats. So, and uh, since it, you know, it's been six hours since these you know, threats were made, and the longer the time since a threat's been made, the less likelihood of it being uh, uh, carried out. But we're just you know, beginning this. The sergeant has been in the car maybe you know, three or four minutes. When I entered the vehicle, I was only in there for about 30 seconds. And the rear side door's open, the interior light's on, so the sergeant can read his notebook. My partner's on the mobile phone. And from my left, outside the door, I hear this pat, pat, pat sound. And what immediately ran through my mind is, oh, you know, what could that possibly be? Oh, it must be some neighbourhood dog that's running out the patrol car. So I nonchalantly turned and looked. But I had uh, no night vision, couldn't see what was outside. But pretty much as soon as my head was facing out the door, in an instant, my head's been forced from there over to my right-hand side down under the back seat of the patrol car because it was in fact a man with a 22 rifle about a meter away shot me in the face and shot me in the shoulder and my hands went around my mouth and there's blood teeth and there's bone i sit up my partner uh, my sergeant his seat is empty his door is open my partner looks completely still and i didn't know if she was dead or alive and i drew my firearm and i went out through the door that i got shot through and i went after the gunman my goodness so you just you just turned and it was like getting punched in the face. You 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 just felt a strike that forced your head across to the or, or 
I wouldn't even say it was like that. It was just instantaneous. The power of it, of it. you know, when I've been you know, punched, uh, I used to you know, do karate, and obviously I've been involved in some fights in the police, and yeah, and there's a bit of lag time. There was no lag time. In one instant, my head's facing out the door, and the next instance, all I know is my head's on the back seat of the patrol car, and my hands are around my mouth, blood, teeth, and bone. And this was actually all recorded over a mobile phone to by police communications. The sergeant's on the mobile phone doing background checks on the suspect. It gets dropped out the window, it lands on the on the patrol um, on the roadway. And so uh, the next few minutes of me getting out, my um, challenge to the offender, my search for the sergeants are all recorded. Uh, so what 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 did you do? So you you kind of uh, somewhat recovered and, 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 and got up. You said you drew your firearm while you were still in the car? I uh, drew my firearm in the car, shouted to my partner, get help. I went out to the door that I got uh, shot through, my firearm pointing out towards the door, and I was um, the adrenaline kicked in and I was simply enraged at this cowardly act. I called on the gunman to return and face me, and uh, he didn't. And I quickly realised I don't know where my sergeant is. And so I started walking down the street yelling out, Chris, Chris, Chris. And when they first heard the audio, they asked me, what were you saying? And I, was, and I told them. So when I, when I speak and I play the audio of the shooting, I actually have the words scrolling um, and, uh, down the screen so people can read it because the bullet had smashed uh, a large portion of my maxilla bone. So that's the bone um, just below, you know, that, that part of the jaw, taken out three top teeth, smashed two bottom teeth, ended my tongue and lodged in my throat. So it was actually very hard for me to speak. My God. Pronounce the words. But I felt no pain whatsoever. I didn't even know until later I'd been shot in the shoulder and the bullet, had, uh, or actually, I was shot in the arm and the bullet lodged in the shoulder. And so, yes, I've made, you know, I've called on him to return. I've searched, couldn't find him. Where was the shooter at that point? That time, I believe he would. he's decamped by then. Uh, the lead investigator into the matter, which turned into a coroner's inquiry, um, felt that uh, my actions, because um, the fire, the offender was armed with a 10-round magazine and he had a second 10-round magazine. And his conclusion was that he wouldn't, did not, he, he thought the government would not suspect anybody after being shot at such close range to get out the, the vehicle and, and challenge them. And so that this person's decamped from the scene and three weeks later he was found. He's used that second uh, um, cartridge with 10 rounds in it and one bullet uh, uh, took in his uh, own life. So he, he actually uh, fired 10 rounds uh, into the... Uh, into the vehicle, uh, and you'd taken two of those. Yep, one in the face, one in the shoulder, two in the massage, one in his shoulder, one. He likes to say his lower back, but it's actually his backside. Looks <laughs> into my partner, and she was uh, very, very lucky, hit no vital organs, and she crawled up into a ball, sort of protecting herself, and was very lucky. Uh, that um, yeah, again, no no vital organs was was hit. But we also had a bit of luck on our side that he was the, the firearm expert said at the academy turned to me, if he had a normal twenty two rifle, I'd be dead. My partner would be dead, and the sergeant would be very sore. But because he had sawn off the rifle, put on a homemade silence, which greatly reduced the power of the weapon. This all went in our favour to re- reduce the power and 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 had less penetrating power. It would, Basically, the round wouldn't travel uh, as far as it normally would. 
Wow. So the, he uh, he used a silencer that he'd made. And, and, and what sort of person goes out sawing a, a, a rifle to bits and... He was a deeply disturbed person. I have his criminal profile and sometimes, depending on the audience, I'll, I'll make that available to them, what was put together in the aftermath. And, and, and just unfortunately, he came from a good family, but he turned out to be a bad egg and had some very serious mental health issues. Uh, was a petty criminal, difficult in communicating. And it's wow. just a very sad story for him and his family and the pain that he inflicted on me and my partner and my sergeant and our, our family. It was a real ripple effect. And to this day, you know, it's not a day that goes by. Like I have to take very special care of my dental hygiene. I look in the mirror, I see the, the scars on my arm, I see the tracheotomy I have to have. It's, um, it's you know, people like, oh, you know, I've been asked, oh, is that closure? And I'm just thinking, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you're so lucky that you, you don't um, have the understanding. And it's like asking, you know, somebody you know, who, uh, who's been through a you know, horrific traffic accident and seen somebody, you know, killed or, or been to war and seen their best friend step on a landmine and blowing up. Oh, you know, it's been 10 years. Is that closure? Uh, I don't know anybody uh, who's, you know, found complaints be able to put it behind them but things will come back, you know, Remembrance Days, uh, movies, people's comments and dreams, out. Of, yeah, all sorts of things. Absolutely makes a lot of sense. Is this uh, gentleman's um, uh, record public record? Is that something that uh, is, is, is available that we can share with our listeners or is that something that uh, is, is a private, um, uh, you know, considered... Um, personal. It is a confidential uh, document, but there's plenty of information about him on the website, uh, on the on the World Wide Web and, and on, 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 um, on my website. Uh, but there probably needs to be a freedom of information request, or what we now call a right for information request, and uh, that that would then be made available. Sure, sure. So you're you're now walking down the street calling for your sergeant. You, you, you mentioned take bring bring me back to that moment. Sorry, it's a cul-de-sac, and when I speak, I have a street diagram just to make it easier to show people. Here's the patrol car. Um, well, here's the street. Here's where the cars were parked. Here's where we're seated in the car. This is my movement when I got out the car, I've circled around in the cul-de-sac, gone into fight mode, started walking down the street, uh, and I. Um, we yelled out, you know, for him initially, but then I was yelling at Chris. It was called on the audio. It's actually eight times that's been recorded. Then the radio cut out, and uh, but there was people started to come out, and so I've turned around and I've uh, confronted these people. Realised they weren't a threat, and, I, and I've given them a direction to move back into the house, and that's been recorded in witness statements from the the street. Uh, so I was able to identify that they were not a threat, uh, which I was very, um, well, very proud of, actually. Um, uh, one of the things is um, you, you think, you, know, you watch police movies or even military movies and you see soldiers or police moving around and, and they're not, you know, prepared to fire, but their finger's on the trigger. Well, you, you know from the military, your finger doesn't go into the no, trigger. No, The intention to fire. And uh, so it's one of my 
something I'm very proud of that there was a number of people come out in the street, not once did my finger go on the trigger. I was able to recognise they weren't a threat, directed them back in the houses. And then I've come back and I've stood uh, at the front of, of the bonnet of the police car. And it was quite a long walk because I didn't know what I was going to find. But my, my partner says, Greeny, I'm hurt. Greeny, I'm hurt. Well, that was music to my ears because I knew Sharnel, she was alive. And so I'm leaning on the bonnet of the patrol car uh, with my right forearm holding my uh, firearm in that hand. I'm holding uh, my mouth in my left hand trying to staunch the flow of blood. And uh, years later, Chanel confided in me. So I'm, I'm saying to her this time, Shah, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. And years later, she said to me at that point in time, she's thinking, we don't know where our sergeant is. There's a gunman on the loser and you pour blood all over the bonnet of the police car. Greedy, you're not very reassuring. <laughs> so that's that one moment where no, no matter what you say, it's not uh, – it's certainly not congruent with the situation in that hand. Uh, yes. Are you feeling? Are you feeling pain at this at this stage, or you know the adrenaline's going, the endorphins are doing what they need to do? You're you're kind of in a bit of a haze. Not at that stage. It was then a, a few minutes later uh, that the first officer arrived, a very brave man, uh, Senior Constable Brett Price. He was working by himself first on the, on, on the scene and he, he was a bit of a naughty boy. He didn't follow police procedure, which was to stop his car, take out the heavy ballistic vest and place it on it and then put in the ballistic plates. No, he wanted to get to us as soon as possible and was expecting to find at least one dead officer. So I've staggered into the middle of the street, met Brett, and he's moving back over to where Chanel is. She tried to get out the vehicle and she was so badly and she collapsed on the ground. And uh, Brett got between us and he asked me where the firing come from and so he's scanning uh, the houses where the direction the gunman uh, came from. First ambulance came in and they uh, um, uh, collected Chanel. Uh, and I'm very proud of this. They came, they saw me first and they um, were coming towards me, but I was really worried about my partner. So I waved him to my partner and Brett also directed them to, you know, to go to Chanel. And so they uh, loaded her on onto a, um, a, a, a Guernsey. Um, Gurney, sorry, and they load her in the back of the ambulance and took off. Now the next ambulance. I'm assuming you you you've still got your firearm drawn and you're just scanning yeah. the, the 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 scene still. I'm fairly dazed by this stage, you know, uh, and dazed and numb, like the the, you know, the adrenaline starting to go, and just the amount of blood loss that I I was. But I still had my I still had my firearm out, pointed in the direction the offender came. And Brett was there, fully cognizant, completely um, you know, scanning the uh, that direction that he'd come from, and providing information back to police communications. You've had no treatment at this stage. You're 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 still. They 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 had to obviously look after your partner. Um, she was more. Um, uh, yeah, she'd taken more rounds, but it actually turned out when we got to hospital, my head wound was deemed the most serious. And my was, goodness public holiday and normally they'd have two operating theatres but since it was a public holiday I only had one and they triaged and I was actually the first one treated to remove that bullet from my head and Charnel um, went in uh, a few hours later and followed by Chris many hours later but they took Charnel away and then the second uh, police vehicle arrived with two officers in it and then I was comforted by Senior Constable Dave Hornby 
And by this time, I'm really starting to feel the pain. And the second ambulance arrived, but they stopped at the end of the street and they were asking through their communications to our communications for a corridor of safety. But we didn't know where the gunman is and we didn't have enough police resources to provide this corridor of safety. And uh, so this conversation's going on over our police radios at the scene to our police communications being relayed back to their communications centre going to the ambulance officers. I'm saying, Dave, when are they going to get it? When are they going to get it? By this time, I was in extreme amount of pain. My mouth and my shoulder, I was really hurting. And uh, eventually they did come up. They checked me for my injuries, loaded me into the ambulance. And uh, we drove to the location. The sergeant, he'd been hit twice. He's uh, He's got out the vehicle. He's got over to the next street. He's found a house with a light on immediately got on the phone and he... Uh, called for uh, police backup and so we've driven to where he was he's exited the house he jumped into the back of the ambulance and i was very lucky i had a paramedic and who gave me instant pain relief and Chanel didn't she actually called into the prince charles hospital she was in so much pain so she could get pain relief before going on to the royal brisbane hospital when chris first uh, entered that ambulance so he said to me, Greeny, do you believe this? And I said, no. And he said, boy, that's a big needle. So the paramedics just giving me that first injection. So I'm very grateful to the Queensland Ambulance first for the greatest hit of drugs I've ever had in my life. And so, the, 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 so, so I'm, I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, the, the sergeant in, in all of this, obviously he's been, he's been struck um, twice uh, or been shot twice, obviously your partner and yourself. Um, he's somehow been able to, to um, ascertain that the, the um, offenders kind of run off and he's gone to basically call for backup. To, 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 to radio well, in or, or... It was an extremely dynamic situation. He's uh, exited the vehicle and his firearm out and he had it pointed at the ground and he saw a person and he didn't really know if it was me or the offender. And so he said to me, you know, I, you know if I took the shot and uh, killed you, I'd be a villain. If I took the shot and killed the offender, I'd be uh, a hero. I couldn't afford to do, do that. And so he's made his uh, way uh, across the street Jumped over it. That's tank. incredible restraint, isn't it? In in, in the heat of the moment, uh, I don't know how my head would be be working at that point because of you know the fear. You know, the, I think fear might get the better of me. You know that that that's. Uh, There's been cases of that, you know, where police have overreacted, and there was an Australian woman shot by American police. Just, he's been charged with murder and with overreaction, which is very very sad, and so. Uh, to the credit to all the police on that night, to uh, to um, my sergeant, Chris Mulhall, who had his gun out, to Brett Price, who had his firearm out, to myself, who had my firearm out. People had come out in the, the, the street that uh, we did not engage um, these people with our weapons. We were able to have the peace of mind to identify that they were not a, a threat or the threat was unknown and we couldn't take the risk of uh, harming or taking an innocent life. I don't know anything about the the uh, you know, police training. I, I I can only sort of uh, talk about my own military sort of training. But you guys must must have such a vigorous and and and, and you know, excellent training program to to drill that sort of uh, attitude, you know, and 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 uh, you know, training to be able to work under such pressure uh, because you know that type of focus and 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 
attention to detail and consideration and, and mindfulness in in chaos carnage you know uh, is, is is phenomenal it really is um, i'm very fond of this, the uh, saying you don't rise to the occasions you fall to the level of your training and uh, our safety aspect is uh paramount and uh, one of them is you know your finger does not go on that trigger until you fully inform the attention to fire and you must be or somebody asked me must be at risk of uh grievous bodily harm or or death and uh, so it's fairly intense at the academy and, and we we shoot once a year uh, to qualify uh which is more would be nice but it's a huge uh in, impost um but fortunately we have a uh, a very good record of the when our officers have had to engage a threat that they have been found to be uh, uh, being, being lawful and being able to uh, justify it, and, and nobody wants to shoot anybody. But there's 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 occasions when they might they're coming at you with. I've seen some body worn footage only just recently, uh, well a couple of years ago now. A man with a large iron pole coming at an officer and. They stopped their vehicles, and by the time they got out their vehicle, it was 30 seconds before the officer had to take out his firearm and, and engage the threat. It was running towards him with a metal pole and uh, shoot and kill the man. If you're hitting the head with a, with a metal pole, we say one punch can kill. You're hitting the head with a metal pole, obviously do brain damage, grievous bodily harm, or even even kill you. So, Absolutely. In your training, do you guys have to uh, reach a certain grouping in your in, in, in your shooting in the in the military? You get three shots, and you've got to be able to, uh, you know, group the three shots within a certain distance. Is that is that does that ring a bell for you guys at all? Do you do anything like that to look at accuracy? Very very similar. Uh, the, the training has changed. As um, I was actually on a revolver at the time when the shooting took place, we've now we were actually transitioning at the time to Glocks. And my partner, she had any, um, she had twelve months in the job, and and she was uh, trained in the Glock and was armed with a Glock. And uh, I was uh, tra- only trained in a revolver, hadn't uh, done the conversion course. But uh, yes, we have uh, yes I. I uh, each year they sort of tweak it, but there's various distances and, and, and various groupings and uh, an automatic fail is if you completely miss the target, that's an automatic fail and you have to completely uh, re- re- reset. Uh, so my apologies, I, I did interrupt. We were at the um, point where you were in the ambulance at this point um, being being taken away. Uh, yes, and uh, Chris, um, he's ended the back. And the paramedics uh, uh, by pain medication uh, to me, thank goodness, and taken to the Royal Brisbane Hospital. We were triaged. I was the first one operated on. They removed the bullet from my head. It was quite a long procedure. Um, by, you know, by the time that they moved in, assessed and anesthetic, it was about three hours. And then they uh, operated on Charnel. The, the bullet in my, in my arm, they didn't actually remove it till a few days later. They uh, wanted to get my uh, you know, head wound uh, uh, stabilized and anyway so after those three hours i operated on chanel and then it would have been sometime late in the afternoon that they finally operated on chris when did they go back to to your shoulder three days later you said uh i'm not sure it was a, it was a couple one or two days one on one, one or two days yes yeah, so i'm not I can't recall exactly when, but there was a delay on that because of the seriousness of the head. When I went to intensive care, 
uh, after the surgery, my father said to me, you know, son, I could hardly recognise you. Your head had swelled to the size of a watermelon. My goodness. That must have been absolutely awful, awful for uh, not only yourself but your your family, your loved ones, for uh, your fellow colleagues, the whole police force in, in, in essence there at, um, you know, I imagine your immediate uh, station or whatever the appropriate terms are must have been just rocked everyone's world. Oh, rocked to the core! It, absolutely, it uh, yeah, it, it, it uh, you know it shook everybody. It was just unheard of. You know, we've we unfortunately we've had officers have been shot, officers have been shot and killed, but we've never had anything like three officers ambushed and shot multiple times and. Incredibly, we we all survived, and, and it was only seven weeks later that another officer attended a domestic violence incident, and he was shot once in the leg. His name was Norm Watt. He was a, a dog squad officer. This is Rockhampton. The bullet severed his femoral artery in his leg, and unless the blood flow is stopped from such a wound, he bleed out in about four minutes, and help did not arrive in time for Norm. So that oh, really stinks. Sent me into a downward spin on for my mental health, you know, and just in the back of my mind, my own mortality, you know, survivor guilt. We've shot multiple times, all of us. He shot once and dies. It was, that was just seven weeks later. Oh. Do you mind talking me through through your headspace, you know, post, post, you know, surgery, whether it's, you know, those days, whether it's weeks, you know, um, the years since? Do you, do you mind just talking a little bit about that? Yeah, oh. Initially, I was stunned and dazed, and then when Norm Watt got shot, that really set me in a downward spiral for my mental health, and I really the full fury of you know, PTSD um, uh, you know, hit me, uh, dreams, nightmares, flashbacks, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, uh, you know, uh, feeling of isolation, uh, just overwhelming and then I went through then I went through the operating and uh, but so I was receiving some professional mental uh, health um, from a psychiatrist and a police psychologist who was a Vietnam vet who was incredibly helpful because he'd walked the walk he'd been a point man in Vietnam tripped a booby trap but then you know there's all these operations I went through and uh, it was but and then this is 2003 and I'd returned to work after the first reconstruction was complete, I was very fragile and I went and worked in a task force Argus, an internet team that investigates uh, internet pedophilia. And uh, I'm sent to see another uh, specialist. His name's Dr. John Arbia, another maxillofacial surgeon. And uh, after the examination, he uh, sits me down and says, Daryl, I was just examining what's in your mouth. Um, I couldn't clean what's in there with my instruments. There's no way you can clean it. Uh, you're at risk of septicemia, bloodborne disease, very dangerous. I'm sorry, you're a reconstructionist. Failed, and I was back to step one, and there was, and, and oh then again, goodness. PTSD came back because the operations were so intrusive; it was like a second trauma. Wow! So each time, obviously, something something so uh, significant in terms of the damage just requires operation after operation after operation and each one of those drags you back to to the event and reminds you and oh my goodness and i remember you know one of the operations i was uh, waking up and uh, i 
you know, I thought a parody and I just wanted to get him and, you know, throttle him by the throat. I was going through all this pain. Nobody likes going to the dentist, but, uh, yeah, what I went through was uh, just horrifically painful. There's just only so much pain medication they, they could give me, you know, cutting out chunks of bone, moving it around, cutting out skin from the roof of my mouth and transplanting over the transplanted bone to be bone graft. There was, in fact, 17 major surgical procedures when I had a, a general anaesthetic, and that doesn't even include all the other minor dental work, endodontic work, you know, uh, um, a uh, prompodontist, uh, and I'm just trying to think of the gum specialist uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, the that uh, they say that I had to uh, see. Yes, it was. Now, somebody said to me once, he said, Greeny, I would have just got a plate, but I was determined to try and get back to the old Daryl Green, and part of that was having, you know, my teeth and gum back and just trying to have a normal mouth. And uh, But I had a battle for years trying to be the old Daryl Green and, and it and so something had happened, like I'd be out running and a car would run over a pizza box and then there'd be a loud pop and I'd turn around, my fist would be raised, um, I was ex experienced hypoarousal and then I'd realise, oh, it's just a car running over a pizza box and i get really angry at myself and saying, well, the old Darrell wouldn't react like that. And it took about a good 10 years for to me to accept and realise, well, I've had this extraordinary experience and, of course, it's going to change me and there's going to be residue that's there for the rest of my life and um, accept that I'm a new person. And uh, you know, not only do I have some things uh, that are, you know, problematic from the shooting, but I also have uh, some goods that come like a, a positive outlook on life, appreciating the small things in life and not sweating the small stuffs. Uh, making sure I enjoy a great life, you know, planning it, you know, reading good books, eating healthy, running, planning my next holiday. Uh, you raised the, the, the length of time it took to get to this place of acceptance and, and in some sense that, that was a bit of a pivotal um, moment for you, uh, uh, something that that I practice is, is, is a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy and, and, and so much of it is based on trying to come to terms with those things that are, you know, the most difficult that are, you know, places that we don't want to go to that, that um, you know, we kind of avoid or trying to push away from. We don't want to, we don't want to accept, you know, we want to, we want to reject that. Um, it sounds that something occurred for you, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming you worked very, very hard at it over, you know, many, many years and, and something kind of came together and stuck and it was like, you know, yeah, you know, gr greeny, so to speak, if I can use that term, um, uh, uh, was different, but that was kind of okay too, that, that we can't expect someone who's shot in the face and had 17 surgeries plus, who's almost lost their life, who's almost seen two of their other, you know, colleagues killed and, you know, and I'm, I'm assuming there's much, much more to the story that, that uh, we haven't even touched on. You know, that's probably the, the surface only, but uh, coming to terms with, you know, that uh, would have been excruciating, a lot of, a lot of work. I could only really start to get to that point when I put the surgery uh, behind me um, because every surgical visit, and I still, I, I, I grind my teeth and I, I had a cracked tooth and so it was only um, about 
uh, two years ago that uh, WorkCover opened up my case again and they um, had to you know, drill my tooth out twice and cap it and they gave me a special plate and uh, um, because I still dream and and and, and I and I know like this like um, a partner um, that I you know, had and, uh, recently said, you know, you scream out at night, and I said no. So there's still stuff, a lot of stuff going on in there that I'm not aware of. So they they gave me that plate and I opened that up, and that that brought back a few things. But but getting the major stuff out of the way, getting them out, that allowed me more clear-headed thinking space rather than just focus on these operations. And another pivotal point was uh, in 2010. Uh, yeah. Do you think I was a victim of a crime? Pretty simple question. I'm not even going to answer that. That is, that is, you know, pretty straightforward. We we have criminal we have criminal compensation legislation in Queensland, and uh, at the time that legislation said you're entitled to compensation if the offender is found guilty, if the offender is found sane, if the offender goes missing. What scenario did they not include? My goodness, suicide. Precisely. And so for years, my lawyers wrote to the Queensland Department of Justice asking for an excratia payment. And in 2010, I picked up the phone to speak to my lawyer again. And she was going to tell me, well, I was told um, she's on maternity leave. I said, no worries, I'll call back in a few months. And But she made up her mind. When she was coming back to work, she was just going to tell me, Daryl, give up on your criminal compensation claim. You're just throwing away good money after bad. They're just not listening. 2010 happened to also be the 10th anniversary of the shooting uh, at a local uh, newspaper, uh, the uh, Sunday uh, Mail, wanted to do an interview and I agreed. They asked about that night, what's transpired since and my hopes for the future. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm still pursuing criminal compensation. If you make an entry, it just might help. Well. Because <laughs> I tell you what, this is like just madness. There's an old American political saying, never pick a fight with a person who buys their ink and barrels. There's a one-page newspaper article, red tape ambushed, copper shot decade ago, still fighting for compensation. Got some people's attention. My compensation was finalised within one month. Wow. So, Isn't that amazing? Has has the legislation or the 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 code or however however we uh, uh, name that has that since changed or there was an exemption made? Fortunately, it has been changed now. So that would be the lawyer was writing and you know, saying an excratia payment of saying Daryl's a victim of a crime. The legislation is is written in such a way uh, that he's uh, excluded. He's and so they're asking for this excratia payment, but the legislation's been uh, replaced and it's a much more uh, uh, a broader uh, you know, definition. So uh, people, my circumstances, would be compensated. They wouldn't have a to go through such hurdles. Good on you. Good, you know. Well, well done for fighting and, and and backing that on a principal basis. I know that not everyone wins these things. I know that a lot of people, you know, end up throwing you know good money after bad. But uh, you know, we, we need pioneers like yourself to say, I'm you know I've, I've been through hell and and I'm going to despite all of this, I'm I'm still going to pursue it. Um, well done. It shows a lot of uh, strength and character. I. I, I I believe in it, and it changes it. It changes it for for you know everyone else who's caught up in this sort of nonsense. Um, heaven forbid, caught up in the nonsense. Um, so 
yeah, well done. Yeah, as a uh, as a quote that I, I I'm um, I, I have on my on my website and I, and I come uh, come up with, and uh, it's basically um, stubbornness in quantity has a quality all of its own. <laughs> but in some sense, you need that, right? I mean, to 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 recover from something like this, I'm not sure if that's the correct word, but. Uh, to kind of live with, if I can use that more appropriately, to live with something like this and continue to move forward, you know, requires you know a stubborn mule type attitude, and 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 uh, you know maybe that 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 that's kind of helped. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, you got to pick your battles, and uh, sometimes is you know is it worth fighting or is it not? And I felt that was one that was was worth fighting. How have you worked um, in 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 living with this, you know, post traumatic stress response that's been, you know, uh, part of your life since since that time? Is that something that uh, you manage uh, more effectively now? Something you can live with more now? I learned a uh, well seeking professional help was very smart. Speaking to people who've been through other experiences. Speaking to people who've been well past it beyond me, like the Vietnam vet who counseled me, just says, you know, it was fascinating just speaking to him. It was about his time in Vietnam, so that was quite interesting. But he also gave me the hope. It says it gets easier as time goes on. It's still with me. He still has dreams and flashbacks. He'll be on antidepressant medication for the rest of his life. But uh, that's you know, and I would agree. It does lessen over time. It, it it's still there, and I have to work very hard. At, like this is not an you know, this is not easy. I can sort of feel the pressure around my temples. But what am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to go for a run. Um, I find exercise, and there's been lots of studies on it. Uh, and running for me is very ther- therapeutic, uh, and I like cooking. So I'm I'm going to you know cook one of my favorite dishes tonight it's not not a healthy dish it's, it's fried chicken and chips but i'll cook it from the ground up but i do enough running to compensate uh, but uh i i still have to use quite a bit of medication uh, especially for sleeping but uh it's just sort of part of the process and and, I, and i've learned well i need to get to bed early you know take that medication so i can get off to sleep and get a sound night's sleep and then in the morning have a graduated uh waking uh, process just depends what's um sort of happening in uh in my in in, in my life uh, uh um but uh, no i i don't i have to work very hard and i find diet exercise conversations you know, with with my dad listening to and try inspiring other true stories and, and one of them was it worked for me was exposure theory and uh, do you want to talk us through that for 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 listeners what you mean by that uh, and so there'll be uh, there'll be triggers, and so something will be occur or something will seen, and it will trigger a memory, and you will have a, uh, a a reaction which can be quite uncomfortable. I'll give you an example. After the uh, the shooting, and and, uh, and this is literally just months afterwards, I'm I'm, I'm off work. I'm uh, facing the operations. They had to think actually how they're going to reconstruct it. It was a very long process and a very difficult reconstruction. And uh, I was trying to do the things that I would do normally. So go to a night venue with friends, sit in the corner and have a quiet drink. And then all of a sudden, my heart raced with people's dials. I'm extremely agitated and overwhelmed. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. I leave the night venue. A friend had come in me. 
And one of my mates joked, he said, this happened so many times, Green, he owed me a couple hundred bucks and from the drinks I left behind. And later on, professional help, I worked out what was happening. So, yeah, you, know, you know, probably know, the, at, the, at our... our at our core level, the brain's a fairly simple instrument. And so uh, what it was doing, it was the flashing lights at the night venue was what was causing my subconscious to recall the flashing lights of the blue and red police lights of the night of the shooting. In my industry, is dangerous for my subconscious. My body goes into survival mode, you know, the you know dilated eyes, you know, the heart rate, the adrenaline rushing, etc. You know, you're in danger. I have to leave the venue to calm down and recover. The amygdala? Amygdala, yeah. Doesn't have the complexity to, to put it into context. It's flashing lights, oh, you're at a night venue with friends. Um, there is no danger. No, it just sees no, flashing lights. Last time there was flashing lights involved, you nearly got killed. You need to get out of here, buddy, and I'm going to start all the appropriate responses to, um, you know, to give you the best chance of survival. So that was um, one of my first experiences with hyperarousal. And, and when that happened, I first up, I just thought I was going crazy. There was something wrong with me. With professional help, I learned what was going on there. And so other things would occur and uh, they, I'd have these, again, these um, hyperarousal um, reactions and so to help with this uh, I uh, went through exposure therapy with a Vietnam vet and he got me just to lie back in his chair close my eyes and talk about the night of the shooting and the very first time that I did this and I got to the point of where I, I was described being shot it was so uh, overwhelming you know, I've actually jolted out of the chair I opened my eyes and it was really confronting but I did that six times with him and by the end of it I could talk about it and there was no issue and it's like the audio. So when I uh, speak now professionally and I play the audio of the shooting, I've heard that so many times it doesn't bother me uh, at the slightest. But there's been numerous things I've had to do to overcome, and one of them was a fear of firearms. And I uh, yeah, decided to continue my career with the police with some encouragement of absolutely an amazing leader, Inspector, the late Inspector David Andrew Stevenson, and I said, oh, they have quite a bit of an issue with, you know, uh, with, with firearms. I want to see if I can overcome it. And, uh, I mean, you know, he could have been very risk-averse and said, oh, you know, um, if you re- react adversely to this course, could reflect poorly on me. But he, um, he built trust. We held courageous conversations. He backed my application. I was placed on the course. And I did have some overreactions and some flashbacks. Uh, and some, some dreams, uh, but I call them the coping mechanisms. This is uh, 2008 when I did this, eight years after the shooting, and then, so I was talking to my trusted supporters. Uh, when I have a reaction, the instructors were really good. They know what I'd been through. They came me away, calmed me down. We go back through the exercise until we got it right, and uh, I uh, overcome my fear of firearms and become a firearms instructor, and I'm still one to this day, and I'm, I'm, I'm highly proud of that. I'm just, I'm actually just really grateful. I know this doesn't work for everybody, but for some reason, desensitization has uh, worked wonders for me. Probably another credit to, and obviously I don't know all the complexities and, and, and the like, but, uh, you know, credit to police force or this particular person. Um, uh, my apologies, I've just forgotten his name. Uh, Andrew Stevenson. I mean, to, to go out and put his neck on the line really and, and, and say, I'll back it, I'll put my name to it, because um, yeah. this is what psychology would, would ask to, to be done. We've got to go out and test it. 
we can't go out and just say, oh, this is going to be re-traumatizing and they're on the side of caution because that's not, as a matter of fact, that becomes another secondary insult. Um, you know, we've got to go out and, and, and give everyone an opportunity because there are lots of times where your story would be, you know, the, the um, expected Story. Now, there are other times where someone still, you know, the, the desensitization will not go out and, and, and do that. But the vast majority, I would say, I'd be fairly confident would, would have some improvement, if not, you know, to, to the level that, uh, that you, 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 you explain. Having said that, there's a hell of a lot of work that goes in it. It doesn't just happen. You, you've got to really be willing. You know, there's got to be a huge you know, willingness to, to sit in that discomfort and work through it and do it again and do it again and do it again. You know, in, 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 and I think willingness is, is part of that key. Uh, uh, it sounds like, you know, you, you, um, you know, did that. I, I remember um, we would leave the police academy on the bus to go to the firearm range and my fists were on my legs and I was like, I was flying white-knuckle airlines and I'd look around and I was just wondering, do these people know how anxious I am? And... Uh, but uh, that sort of experience has really helped me when I'm, I'm anxious again about doing something. I look back, well, I've been anxious in the past and that was the right thing to do, to, to, uh, to step up and, and keep on going. And one of my mantras is just keep on going. You don't know what to do, just keep on going, you know. And, uh, yeah, change, change, is, change is constant. And if you don't know what you know, to do, just, just keep on going. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very... Um, Proud to be an ambassador for Lifeline, and you know people each sort of reach the end of what they think is the, you know, the end of the line. This is the you know the easy solution, and, and it's not. You know, suicide just transmit that pain further and farther up, up, um, apart. And I, and I say I did contemplate that. You know, the times got so dark for me, and one of the stories I tell, I was facing the second reconstruction in my mouth. I'd been through hell. I knew what I was going back for. And uh, and they were cutting out a chunk of bone in my mouth with three paces of titanium, rotating it around, taking another bone graft from my lower jaw, placing that in the, t- in, in the just underneath my um, nose area as like a, uh, how would you describe it, Dan? Uh, a wedge, as a, as a wedge. And uh, to um, try to, you know, the second reconstruction, I was out running, I crossed a bridge, I turned, I put both hands on the railing, I looked down, I just said, life is just a struggle, I can jump it and it'll all be over. And it would have been just so easy just to take all my pain away, go into blackness. But being a police officer, I've been to suicides, I've seen the effects of families and friends, and I simply say, I can't do this to mum and dad. And so I turned and I continued running. I could see no light at the end of the tunnel, but you know, thanks to you know, you know, a loving parents uh, and, and knowing the effect that it had, that was able to keep me going and, and look what's happened now. I've continued in my career. I've had three promotions. I've travelled the world. I've started a uh, part-time speaking business. So, uh, it's, um, and, you know, and I've got lots of good things, you know. I'm sure there's going to be more pain in the future, you know. We, you know, as we get older, you know, whatever, you know, it, it may it may be. But my next big thing is January. My brother and I have a uh, ski trip uh, booked in France. He lives in the UK with his family, and I visit every year. And that's my next uh, uh, big thing I'm looking forward to. And I always put a, a new book on my coffee table 
uh, when I look forward to a trip, I see it every day and it's just a reminder of what's to come. These are some of the uh, ripple effects. There's, there's certainly been a, uh, uh, an enormous amount of negative uh, ripple effects from what happened that, that uh, evening and, and I'm hearing there's also some uh, positive ripple effects of appreciation uh, for these uh, opportunities that have been uh, afforded to you or given to you or you've worked on uh, and, and even things like a trip with your with your brother is is something that I can see in your face how fond uh, see how it looks like you're very fond of, of, of your brother and good 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 mates and and you know excited to be to be doing so oh we're extremely close he flew out when um, when he got the news and he was by the bedside and we were best mates growing up and he rings dad every night from the UK uh, when he was before you know he's going to work or on the weekend he's going to do something with his boys and uh, uh, yeah no we're we're extremely close but I, I I've met the the best in in people and the worst in people through this experience and one of the lo- lovely stories I like to tell and my reconstruction was uh, was signed off as complete and finalised in 2006. And what happened next was my bottom teeth started to splay apart. So if you do something in one part of your mouth, often has an effect in another part. So these bottom teeth start to splay apart. And so the orthodontist, so I had orthodontic work as as part of the uh, extensive orthodontic work as part of the second reconstruction. And I've gone to the uh, orthodontist who was paid by work cover. You know, to treat me. His name's uh, Bob James, retired now. I believe he might be teaching. And he simply said to me, mate, don't worry about work cover. You've been through enough. I'll bring your teeth back together. Don't worry about that. And he put braces on the inside and brought them together. Just a, an incredible piece of human kindness. And didn't want to put me through the bureaucracy of, of having that opened up. So, yes, very, very uh, a great man. So I'm so grateful and it sometimes takes, you know, such such uh, awful awful situations and carnage, but it brings out brings out the, 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 this incredible part that's in so many of us the, the, of generosity and kindness and compassion. Have 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 you felt, you know, uh, a lot of that from from people that when you when you share their story, it kind of um, kind of gets them to check in with their own lives and be grateful themselves. I um, people become quite emotional when I speak because of, you know the, the photographs I'm telling them the role playing that I that, that I do and and, the, and I tell them and then I show the photograph and it's some of them are just horrific uh, and it's not put there to shock for us that this is the real world and this is what people didn't see so I'll give you an example my my dad's not much of a photographer but. But he couldn't explain to my relatives, and then Dad says, I don't take many photographs, it's just not me, but I couldn't explain to our relatives what you were going through. So I took a few photographs, and we didn't know it. Um, but um, I, I now, you know, do this speaking, and I'll take people through the journey afterwards, a big part, which was this surgical procedures, and I'll tell them this is the, what I was going through. Oh, here's a photograph of me. And then I'll tell them, you know, and they'll, they'll see something and they'll be like, oh, geez, that looks terrible. But then I'll tell them another story. Well, as you can see, my face is swelled out, you know, to the, you know, massively contorted and you can see the eyes bulging, sign of head trauma. But after a, a, a few weeks, that swelling will all go down. And so when with the first uh, reconstruction, I had 20 months off work. 
and the people um, you know would, would see me out you know the, the shopping centers or doing something they'd have a look at me and they'd see a few missing teeth and then they'd see you know 20 months off work and make a, a snap judgment you know old greenie he's having it easy and I, I say to people during my talk well i'll show you what i was going through that 20 months and you can make up your own decision and because it was all internal in my mouth once the swelling goes down it just looks like i'm missing three teeth uh, but they never saw the the you know the the trauma of all the uh the bone grafts the skin grafts the implants uh, um, uh and there's there's one horrific photograph that just you get gas from the audience, but it really brings it home. It's not just for me, but but you know for other people. So one of the things things I talk about support for supporters of those doing it tough. At the time, there was no help for my mum and dad. They weren't entitled to anything. But I was seeing a psychiatrist, and dad became depressed over this. And this psychiatrist was being paid by worker and was so good. I, I told him about dad. So after he'd give me a session. He'd see dad for 15 minutes who could explain. My dad went on antidepressants and really helped him. So I was very, very grateful for this doctor and his insight. And that's since changed now. Uh, to what extent, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, there was great people. So that was a psychiatrist who uh, you know, basically volunteered a little bit of his time to help my dad who was doing it uh, psychologically uh, tough. It must be hard because obviously I can only see you through through video, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I can't see any scarring or anything significant. So I'm, I'm assuming the bullet, you know, penetrated through the skin and then just absolutely made a mess and carnage and just destroyed everything internally. But externally uh, was, I suppose, minor in comparison to the shattered mess. On yes, the the lip, lip was quite easy to repair and the plastic surgeons did a great job on the, on, on the lip. Uh, but, yeah, it was internally. Once the bullet went internally and uh, and uh, I speak, and it's actually on my website, I've got a 3D video done up that shows the bullet striking my uh, mouth and obliterating the maxilla bone, the three teeth and the two bottom teeth, and, and, uh, which had Gosh. to be all, all, all repaired. And... Uh, no, so uh, one of the things I take away is, you know, and, and the great boss that I talk about, Inspector Dave Stevenson, uh, who was such an incredible support. Um, he, he, one thing he hated about people, how others were, were, were so dismissive about what people were going through. And, uh, he, and, and these snap judgments. And I've, I've found it's only after people have gone through something themselves that, they, that they've gone, oh, I didn't realise I've said some things or I've had some judgments. And, and it was an officer who tore his arm, a uh, muscle, during some training and it took months. And he said to me, I said, I, and he was a fairly young fellow, and, and, and he said to me that this has taught me a lesson because if I saw the amount of time that the person had off just with a torn arm and a surgery, I would have, you know, thought, you're uh, taking advantage of it now i realize what a long process and how hard it is and you may want to train hard but you can't because you'll damage it and what a long process is it is and uh, i've even seen that with a senior police officer who was uh had a little bit of a different attitude about me and then he had major uh, uh surgery and then he had a long rehab and when he came back to work, he was a hell of a lot nicer to me. <laughs> <laughs> a few things clicked for him.
it's hard to put ourselves in 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 in, in another person's shoes. But uh, these sort of stories kind of remind us that that uh, you know we can't go out and judge you know on, on that surface level because there is just so much more that's going on. You know whether whether it be know how your the ripple effects of how your sleeping is or, or you know an internal heart racing and major discomfort in certain you know areas situations that trigger this experience to to to, to return you know or, or whether it's biting on something and it you know gives a sensitivity to your teeth and it, it, it's an it's another reminder altogether there's an infinite number of things that that kind of uh you know, ripple through through these things. That's you know one of the things people don't appreciate about PTSD. That uh, there's there, there's a natural response that has to occur to remind us because that's it's there. If if, if we're not reminded by it, you know, we we, we, we cease to um, you know have that survival instinct. And as much as we don't want it, um, uh, unfortunately, that's the remnants of of um, unfortunately being being shot in the face. Look, you, know, you can learn the healthy ways of, of how to deal with these uh, instances when, when things crop up. And I'll give an example from my life. So 2010, I've come a long way. I've uh, you know, been awarded my criminal compensation. I've become a firearms instructor. My career's back on track, just been promoted to senior sergeant. And I was watching a series called The, the Pacific, and it was done by the HBO, the same people who did the series, The Band of Brothers. So I'm watching this previously, like in, I think it was 2001, the movie Black Hawk uh, Down came out. And I watched that uh, with family and friends and, and my heart was racing. I was really, it triggered a lot for me. Anyway, I sat through that. So 2010, I'm watching this uh, mini-series, 10-part mini-series of, of Marines in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. And there was blood and there was gore and it was horrific. And uh, I'm watching all that and there's no adverse reactions whatsoever. And it's the 10th uh, episode and the final one. I'm at my apartment, I'm cooking dinner and I'm watching it. And there was this, uh, you, know, you, you know, based on, it was based, that series was based on, on, on the memoirs of, of two Marines. And uh, one of those Marines, uh, he became a, a medic and his parents didn't really didn't want him to join, but he did. And he's come home from the war and that completely unscathed, but he's seen absolute carnage. And he's in bed, tossing and turning, having a nightmare from the war. And his father's outside his bedroom, the door's closed and the father's leaning up against the door, feeling hopeless. And that triggered me an overwhelmed feeling of guilt of what I put my parents through because after mum suggested, oh, oh, my darling, why don't you join the police? About two weeks after that, we're at the family home, we're on the veranda, it's in the evening, and my father says to me, son, I don't mind you joining the police, but I'd rather you join the federal police, and that way you wouldn't have to go to those terrible domestics and risk the possibility of being shot or even killed. And I thought, what's the chances of that? I want to stay in the sunshine state. I love Queensland. I love our weather. I'm sworn in with 400 other Queensland police officers and I'm the only one shot. And did I feel some guilt? But I picked up the phone. I spoke to mum and dad. I told them what I was feeling about. And my dad simply said, you, you could have been a taxi driver and, and, and could have been murdered by somebody who just didn't want to pay their fees. And, and that was actually one of the very first jobs I went to in the police. I was, I was in my 
first couple of weeks was I'm guarding a crime scene where a taxi driver had been murdered by two people. One of the things that uh, seems to just keep coming back in our conversation and and, uh, in doing some research before our uh, conversation here is how close you are with your family. How, how important they are and it, it seems like they've been such a huge part of, of, of uh, you know, your recovery and, and, and who you are today. Uh, I saw a video um, of you receiving an award recently and, and uh, I, uh, I must say I, I did tear up uh, somewhat. I had to hold it back a little bit with um, – with your father sort of saying some words at the end about how proud he was, um, uh, that that was that was a a real touching moment. Um, uh, has that has that uh, uh, has your family been a real real sort of a big support piece that that that's helped you get through through to to today? I wouldn't be here today. If it wasn't, if I never had a, uh, a close and loving and supportive family, uh, I'm sure that I'd most likely you know, be dead because it, it, it was just that difficult. Uh, and they were there to pick up the pieces, and, and, uh, and I, I knew that. And, uh, and I've had friends who've been in the opposite situation. I had one friend who was hospitalized. And that's when his wife decided to leave him and uh, just, you know, just had a terrible effect on him. Uh, and uh, I'm just, at, at the time I had a girlfriend and that lasted for about 18 months, but it was a, a lot for her to deal with. And I don't think we were, we were entirely compatible and we, were going, we weren't going to go down that road of getting married. But, uh, but the unconditional love of my parents is uh, what has, uh, has got me through. And still to this day, I love bringing my dad good news uh, of, of what's transpired. They were there for every step of the way. They know ev- they know everything. And so when I give a keynote, there's only certain stories you can include, but they've lived the journey with me. And uh, mum passed on in 2016, which was a huge uh, blow, but uh, she was there to, um, to see a very uh, key turning point in my life. And again, it was somebody else who a little bit of human kindness. Uh, oh, two, two stories here. I'll, I'll try to be brief. 2006, I'm at the academy. I'm very closed off. A person described me as a complete ghost. Had this amazing boss um, you know, uh, you know, come in charge of me. And uh, when I first saw him, I thought, oh, I've had some uh, you know, intensive treatment before. What am I in for the squirrel of a boss? Nobody wanted to speak about the shooting. It was kind of taboo. But I had a colleague, and we were constables together, worked in the watch house. He's a recruit instructor, and he said to his boss, I wonder if Daryl's got anything to offer by speaking to my recruits about the shooting. He said, don't ask Daryl. Go see his manager. My manager, oh, the shooting, we don't speak about it. It's kind of taboo. What are we going to do? Let's go see the inspector. So they go and see this big bear of a man. And he turns very busy. Has time for one sentence. He turns us around and says, why don't we ask... Daryl, if he wishes to speak to Paul's request, let's empower the man. And so uh, I'm asked and I, I'm agree. And this was a real turning point. And this is a person I like to speak to about a lot in my talks, Dave Stevenson. But what did this time Paul boss do next? We're walking along on a path. He's barreling along in the opposite direction. Hey, Granny, I hear you again to speak to Paul's recruits about the shooting. Why if I come along, sit and listen? Might help me be a better boss for you. 
And so there was a long process of building trust there with him. And he had a big influence on, on me. And I love talking about Dave and his leadership skills and, and breaking down those walls that I put in. So 2006, I started speaking. In 2014, I had friends over for a barbecue. We spoke about a day. And I showed one of my mates what I'd been doing. I've been speaking to the recruits about the shooting. He had a look at it and he thought, hmm, there's probably a bit of room for improvement there. And he didn't really say anything. Now, he was a highly successful businessman and um, he would get some coaching for his financial breakfasts that he would host. Married a beautiful Thai girl, Yui, and buys a Thai restaurant, builds a bar on it, and they have a function to celebrate the opening of the Tuk Tuk Bar. And he deliberately invites me along. And uh, he comes over, puts his arm around, hey, Greeny, great to see you. I'd like to introduce somebody. Mike, this is Greeny. Here's a very interesting story. Introduced to a chap named Michael L. Fashion, tell him about, a bit about my background. And uh, he thinks, wow, that's a pretty amazing story. Turns out he's an executive performance coach. One of his core skills is teaching people public speaking. Later on, he confided in me. The next thing that ran through his mind, wow, Randy, you got a lot to offer the world by speaking, but I know you can't afford my fees. But out of the goodness of his heart, and he, he saw something there, he volunteered his time, took me under his wing, started coaching me in speaking. And then I got introduced to professional speakers in Australia, and there was... Um, a scholarship that was offered by and Mike said you should go for that. And there's a bit of a story behind that, feeling sorry for myself, thinking when I learned about the competition uh, and that, but I learned the lesson, feeling sorry for myself, got, got nowhere. I thought, well, Dave had faith in me and helped me refocus on my career. Mike has faith in me. He's been coaching me and speaking. So I got off my backside. I uh, put together in two weeks a very long uh, application. It was a process was very um, complex. And yeah, I also had to submit a mandatory video of you speaking in public. And you know, Mandy, I had? I had one. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, mum and dad picked me up, took me to the uh, airport, flew to the Scala event, and uh, they made an announcement. And when they uh, mentioned the Queensland police, I had a quick look around. No other copies here from Queensland. It must be me. And uh, and so that was the start of my professional speaking uh, career. I was awarded the Kerrynear Scholarship for Public Speaking, and it's hence you know helped me you know launch twice shot you know the branding and and, and the speaking and uh, and Dad loves the uh, the news of the speaking, so I uh, yeah I love bringing it to him and I love telling a true story. What an incredible story. And and, and and nice to, 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 to hear with all that perseverance and support and people coming out of the woodworks, you know, they're, 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 there is a real positive ripple effect if you can see it, if you can work on it and appreciate it because it doesn't come, you know, by, by, by itself. Uh, and, and, and you've now launched a, a business on the side. You're speaking. Um, uh, uh, tell, tell me a little bit, of, a little bit about that. Uh, with the scholarship uh, comes a mentor and so there's a, all these courses that, that you can do and I had a, a, a mentor who uh, lives quite close to me and I used to you know start off my talks uh, uh, telling uh, you know a, a, a true in, inspiring story a little with a little bit of you know what's happening next the only thing was it wasn't about me and my mentor Kevin Ryan uh, he said to me Daryl you know People are wanting to hear about you, not somebody else's story. Uh, and, and so do you think you might have a story that you could start off with? And, and I thought, well, you know, I've got a lot of stories being in the police at that stage for, you know, what, nearly 25 years. It's getting up to nearly 30 now. And he said, soon as I, you were willing to drop 
that opening story, which talked about man flight, very inspiring story about Orville and Wilbur Wright. There's all these people, all the professionals trying to, you know, all the engineering degrees and all this fun behind them. But you had two guys with a little bit of drive and a little bit of mouse and the first to, um, um, you know, to achieve man-powered flight. And he said, as soon as you, you know, you, you, you said, yep, I'm going to drop that. Let's, you know, go on with my own stories that I knew I could work with you. And he's been absolutely uh, sensational. And he's with important talks. He still comes along. You know, we have dinner every couple of months. He coaches me. Still, and so it's it's still a huge journey. It's like it's like you know, somebody playing the violin, and you and I are here, and they go, "That's ma- magnificent." But somebody else will, you know, the player will say, "I am so far to get to the next level," and that's like the speaking. And uh, um, I love it. I, I, I'm. I've got a little bit of a knack for it. I'm a quite a gregarious, outgoing person, which is the opposite when I got shot. And I've had friends say to me, nearly back to the old ring, after I got shot, I became closed off, very quiet. And, uh, and fortunately, I've come much more closer to the... Uh, to the older green, he uh, likes to tell a yarn and make people laugh and then listen to their stories and have a laugh and, and have a good time. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is... Um, my, my dad's my greatest you know um coach because he'll sit down here and listen to me but the funny thing when i step on the stage you know one of our biggest fears public speaking i actually get energy to the stage my performance actually improves with, with, with the crowd you know so and it's all about serving them you know, and so you've had a life of service and, and and you continue to to go out and and do that you know from putting your body on the line on a everyday basis to, to, to now serving with with you know your story and educating others and, and being an inspiration right? very humbling it is uh, yeah but I don't like being bored with people speaking it happens so often and uh, and uh, the, um, the, the the rostrum uh, the podium people speak from if I could I would take an axe and I would cut that down. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can people find out more about you Daryl? Uh, simply if they go to uh, twiceshot.com, uh, that's my uh, website. So that's got all my information in there, my top seven resilience lessons. Uh, as uh, my you know, video snippets of me speaking. It's got the audio, the shooting on there, the full audio. There's a keynote on there as, as well, video uh, a library and uh, a little bit on social media. I'm not as active on social media as, as I would like, just simply because of the other commitments in my life, not only you know my, my normal, my day job, but um, I'm now uh, you know you know looking after my all the financial affairs for my 87 year old father, and my 92 year old uncle's had a stroke and is in a, is in a home, and I have the enduring power of attorney, and it's that's been another battle. I've got some stories around that. Mm-hmm. I just uh, unbelievable barriers. You know, it just boggles the mind and uh, you know and then you learn all these businesses are opening during uh business hours uh, you know so I, i'm in a training role right now monday to friday and it's been so challenging because come the weekend i can't do anything so i've had to take you know days off or work really early shifts and and it's it's a really long process this enduring power of attorney uh, but we're getting there step by step Another tough road, and you're certainly a tough cookie, and and and, and I'm sure you'll, uh, you know, use your perseverance and everything that you've learned to 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 get get through that as well. I think you know, it's incredible what 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 you do, and you know, every day, you know, you, you serve our community, and 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 likewise, you know, your 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 fellow colleagues. You know, I think we can all appreciate, you know, 
what you guys do just that little bit more after after hearing this as well. So are your contact details on your website as well if anyone wants to reach out or find out more about how they might engage you? Yeah, my email's there, uh, my manager's details there, but if anybody wants to reach me, you know, um, reach me directly at daryl at twiceshot.com, D-A-R-Y-L. And, uh, mate, Nesh, it's been a real uh, you know, uh, privilege to, to speak on this show and, and, and send a message of hope to, uh, to people and, uh, and, and talk about and acknowledge those great people like the Dave Stevensons of that world and, 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 and those great parents because they've had an, a hard road too. And Dave Stevenson said to me, I used to lie awake at night and thinking how the commissioner our former commissioner, Bob Atkinson, a highly respected man, how he would like me to treat you. And that was his level of commitment. Uh, and uh, I once said to him, crossing a path after I graduated and got my degree, Dave, I wasn't I wasn't firing on all eight cylinders. Thanks for your support. He said, Greeny, and, and you know, thanks for your support. And, you know, and, you know, and it was just you know, great working under you. He said, Greeny, you never worked under me. You worked with me incredibly humble man unfortunately he has passed on but i had the honor to be a pallbearer at his, at his funeral and i wrote a um a uh, uh, a valediction or a tribute to him and if i can just mention two quick stories about this man uh one of the things that he would do and uh was each day he tried to talk to people in the office about something that wasn't work related and, and, and we had one fellow, Mike Wallace, multimedia developer from England. He loved the Crystal Palace football team. So, hey, Mike, how did your team go on the weekend? And Mike launched in, how the match went, etc. But Dave was also judging how he was going you know, at work, at home, and life in general. And so he could help if there was you know, something going on. And one of those people in the office uh, had a fall on the weekend, had a brain injury. He ended up in hospital for three months. His mother couldn't drive. When Dave went to visit him, he went and picked his mother up, rang her and said, Marie, I'm going to see Trevor. Um, would you like me to you know, pick you up on the way? And he'd take him up. And uh, so he had these incredible personal skills and he worked very, very hard. So it wasn't just me. And I know that. And it's in the valedictorian. What happened was the day after he died, I was at my office at work and a senior constable walked by and passed my office door and then walked back. And she's come into my office and she was, uh, uh, you know, tears just flooding out. And she said, you won't remember me, but I heard you talk about, you know, what happened to you and working under Dave Stevens and what he did. I then worked under him uh, as a member of the Australian Federal Police at the, at the airport. He was everything you said he was. Uh, it wasn't just me. And he worked hard for everybody. And uh, my dad loves me talking about that individual because it, he wrote a letter once when I graduated in 2008 with a master's degree, which was a big load of mine. And he said, Dave, we could only do so much on the home front. You were there on the work front. Thank you. And, and so it takes many, many people to help somebody get through something like this. Well said, and I think uh, you know your story, your recovery, your your attitude is is a tribute to all of those as well, and and uh, I dare say good reason why uh, they've also been the way that they have been with you. I, I got lucky in the game of life um, with you know with great parents. They're the, your first mentors, and then I got you know, lucky that I got no you know sort of permanent physical disadvantage from the shooting and then I had all these great people come into my life and I think probably the number one thing that I learned is it, and, and 
and, Dave, and, and it was a conversation with Dave Stevenson and, and, I, and I thanked him for, for, for his wisdom and he said, Greeny, you may not have realised but I never told you to do anything. I only made suggestions and because you act on a suggestion, I invested more and more in you. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of getting off my backside but when I was a bit lost, I had my folks there, I had Dave Stevenson's there and... Uh, uh, and, and I hope our listeners can, you know, they have, you know, a great family or if not a family, great friends and, and great supporters at work and listen to them and dig deep, find that grit and to keep on going because uh, you can you can achieve amazing things and live a great life no matter what you've been through. I think that's a good place to uh, finish up on. Daryl, I really appreciate, you know, your time and sharing so openly. Um, and if I can say, you know, Greeny, I wish you all the best in, 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 in continuing to, to serve us. And, and from all of us, I, I really do genuinely, you know, acknowledge and appreciate, uh, you know, how much your, your, your profession gives, you know, gives us all. Um, so thank you. Nesh, I'd like to thank you and I'd like to thank the audience uh, for their time and, and sharing a little bit of the journey that I, my family and close friends and colleagues have, have been on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you